Celtic tradition saw the passing of our seasons as a cyclical battle between two age-old entities. The Oak King was one. He ruled our country until the height of summertime, the summer solstice. But at this exact point of the year, the Oak King was met by his challenger, his opposite and equal, the Holly King. As a counterpoint to the Oak King, the Holly King's force grew from the summer solstice onwards, with his power peaking at midwinter, at which point the Oak King would pull himself back together and they would recommence their ancient struggle once more. The Oak King is often praised for arriving with sunshine and regrowth, whereas the Holly King is deemed cold, frigid and consistently harsh. But it also provides a rich, deep evergreen season, one with bright scarlet fruits for starving forest dwellers and shelter at the inn where needed. Their tussle for power is therefore far more complex than simply good versus evil or feast versus famine. Rather, it presents the two psyches of one singular green man, the protector of balance in nature, of the holistic, cyclical and interwoven biodiversical reality of everything natural. The Holly King served as inspiration for the man who approached King Arthur's round table at Christmas time. A mysterious stranger gate-crashed Arthur's party and challenged any knight present to strike him down with their axe. The cost was to be simply a return axe blow in a year and a day's time. Unbeknownst to the arrogant young Gawain and his mighty chopper, this stranger's return, like winter, was guaranteed, and the reckoning severe. Written around 1350, here is an extract from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that attempts to describe that unwelcome visitor. But the hue of his every feature stunned them. As could be seen, not only was this creature colossal, he was bright green. No spear to thrust, no shield against the shock of battle, but in one hand a solitary branch of holly that shows greenest when all the groves are leafless. So, as a sign of respect to the colossal Green Knight, a.k.a. the Holly King, I launched this whole series on a very particular date, one that meant that today's episode, the final episode, would be released today, on the winter solstice. Today is the day that the Oak King begins his fight back against the Holly King, and tomorrow, at least for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, you will have more delightful photosynthesis powering daylight to bask in than you did today. And for any pedants that may be listening, yes, I have juggled the order of my 56-ish plants a little from their formal taxonomic order to make sure that we did end with today's particular tree, because... Well, it's Christmas. So yes, today's tree is our final tree. A festive tree. Today we explore Tree 56. Holly, 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 holly. Our true Christmas tree. Holly. Ilex aquifolium. And so, having heard it at least 55-ish times already, I invite you all to sing along with Bella Hardy for the 56th-ish time as I take a look at our final native British tree. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Hollies are typical examples of the kind of plants that dominated most of Europe for some 60 million years prior to the last Ice Age. This was when we were basking in a semi-tropical climate. 
Holly's evergreen foliage took advantage of the sun's year-round warmth and light, with their leaves glossy coating effortlessly allowing it to shed all of that abundant water. Due to the dominance of laurels in these kinds of ancient forests, these habitats have become known as the Laura Silver. Ancestors of our holly were increasingly abundant throughout the Cretaceous period, meaning holly predecessors could have been grazed upon by the European titanosaur Hypsilosaurus or used as camouflage by the feathery carnivore Pyroraptor. And if you're delighted that I finally squeezed dinosaurs into this series, well, you're not as chuffed as I am. But holly is a relic. Its genus, Ilex, is the sole survivor of its entire family, the Aquifoliaceae. The common ancestor to our holly didn't arrive here until about 50 million years ago during the Eocene, where, with dinosaurs having been extinct for 20-odd million years, our holly's great-great-great-etc. grandparents were more likely to have been visited by the berry-eating Propaleotherium, a small mammal that looked like a tapir with toes. And if you're delighted that I finally squeezed in an extinct mammal that looked like a tapir with toes, well, you're not as chuffed as I am. But extinct fauna and megafauna aside, however, when the global climate cooled, holly and the Silver forests retreated from our shores. They headed south and ice took their place. But a mere 6,000 years ago, centuries since the ice had thawed, and with the relatively stable warmth of the Atlantic period having set in, holly returned once again. And today, despite our climate having cooled a little since the Atlantic period, holly has maintained its own niche in our seasonal temperate forests and can be found throughout Britain, except the extreme north. In the British Isles, being evergreen can provide a unique advantage in the understory of our deciduous woodlands. Here, it benefits in the spring, before the sun is shut out by taller, leafier, canopious is that a word, friends, and then again in autumn once their foliage has been lost again. All of that winter sunshine falls straight to holly and its fellow evergreens. As such, in good conditions, a mature holly tree could grow as tall as 15 metres and can live for around three and sometimes even 400 years. Taking into account all that I have just said, it may seem ironic for a plant that historically lived in a rainforest to be associated with winter and with Christmas time. But as the Green Knight shows us, it is holly that shows greenest when all the groves are leafless. Or with the poesy of Emily Bronte, Love is like the wild rosebriar and friendship like the holly tree. The holly's dark when the rosebriar blooms, but which will bloom most constantly? The wild rose briar is sweet in spring, its summer blossoms scent the air. Yet wait till winter comes again, and who will call the wild briar fair? Then scorn the silly rose wreath now, and deck thee with the holly sheen, that when December blights their brow, he still may leave thy garland green. It is the holly that gives us winter vibrant colour and contrast, and as you'll hear, much, much more. And to keep you a robin's breast of what's going on this week, today's vocal cues are being read wholly appropriately by my great, great friends, Ms. Holly Newell and Mr. Richard Hollis, which is a 13th century surname that means someone who lived where holly trees grew. And it is doing like that that makes me love making this podcast. I'm going to miss it. But to bring it back to me for a second, the Latin name for holly, Ilex, is actually in reference to a kind of oak tree. 
An evergreen oak, to be precise, one that has spiked leaves, just like our holly. But to say that Quercus ilex, or the home oak, has holly-like leaves is actually putting the cart ahead of the horse. You'd be etymologically more accurate to say that our holly has leaves like an oak tree, albeit a spiky evergreen oak tree. But to confuse things further, the holm in holm oak's common name is a direct reference to the holly tree. Holm being a traditional name for holly, stating that this is an oak tree that is recognised by having leaves, like a holly. So, depending upon which name you'd prefer to prioritise, the scientific Latin or the common English, here are two plants that are named for each other, an endless botanical snake devouring its own tail. But as home oaks aren't native to our shores, and as this episode is all about holly trees, oak trees be damned. So, holly leaves are iconic and idiosyncratic-ish, belying their subtropical past. Holly leaves are evergreen and distinctly painful if you're to get stabbed by their spikes. These spikes are present to dissuade grazing herbivores, who, in winter, with nutritious foliage in short supply, would find these evergreen leaves particularly nourishing. For holly leaves have a higher calorific value than any other British tree. But did you know that only those leaves that are at grazing height are spiky? The higher up the leaves grow, once they're out of the reach of most herbivores, although tall deer may still be able to reach them, the less sharply pointed the holly leaves become, and with that, their margins become whole. As the romantic poet and previous poet laureate Robert Southey says in his poem The Holly Tree... No grazing cattle through their prickly round can reach to wound. But as they grow where nothing is to fear, smooth and unarmed, the pointless leaves appear. So there you have it, yet more proof, if proof were needed, that botany is a discipline best explained through rhyme. Holly leaves, as well as being pointy or not, are also pretty high in caffeine and contain a bitter alkaloid called illicin. As such... We humans used to make a tea from holly leaves, one that can be used to purge our digestive system and was subsequently used for a measles and rheumatic fever remedy. But the elicin is really there to help deter hungry invertebrates. Few insects eat holly. That said, ignoring the unpalatable leaves, the holly blue butterfly lays its eggs on holly flowers and holly buds with its larvae sucking juice from the holly berries. The holly blue is a stunning grey baby blue butterfly, particularly attractive, but it also feeds off rotten carrion, as do many butterflies, so it's not perhaps quite as angelic as it seems. Vomit-inducing tea and carnivorous butterflies aside, the most important use that humans found for holly was for feeding their livestock. Until Baldrick's favourite turnip became increasingly cultivated between the 13th and 18th centuries, Holly leaves were the dish of the day. They provided highly calorific winter fodder that was readily available and would sustain animals throughout the winter. Subsequently, holly was farmed. Whole plantations of holly trees were propagated to be pollarded purely for this purpose. One such plantation can still be found just outside the wonderfully named town of Snail Beach near Shrewsbury. Managed by the Shropshire Wildlife Trust, the nature reserve known simply as the Hollies is full of ancient scattered groves of holly trees, some of which are three or four centuries old. 
Here, the ancient hollies creak and twist with trunks that are riddled with decade-old beetle burrows and bark that looks like driftwood. And yet from these skeleton trees, juicy, youthful evergreen twigs still sprout and scarlet red berries still form. You may also, if you're lucky, find a cuckoo tree. A younger tree, like a rowan, with its similar red berries that has grown up from within the ancient holly tree and split the holly in the process. These cuckoo trees grow from seeds that have germinated in the cracks of holly bark, seeds that were inadvertently dropped there by birds as they attempt to clean their beaks of sticky berry juices or excreted by overwintering birds that use the dense holly foliage to nest in. For holly provides fantastic nesting cover for birds, as well as dried out holly leaves fall into the understory, providing perfect cover for hibernating hedgehogs and other small mammals. Holly trees are dioecious, meaning there are male holly trees and there are female holly trees. And just to make it hard for those wanting to identify which is which, the white four-petaled flowers on a female tree still possess stamens, albeit abortive ones, and the near-identical white four-petaled flowers on a male tree still contain vestigial ovaries. So, you're best to wait until the tree bears fruit. Only the lady has that privilege, and then it is easy to identify which is which for it is simply impossible to miss holly berries. But, botanically speaking, the holly does not produce berries. I know, botanists are spore sports. They produce droops, like with our sloe or our cherries. About 40-ish episodes ago, in the episode about our blackthorn tree, I talk more about droops, so feel free to head back to check that out. But yes, holly berries are red, bright red, and they are round and of the bigness of a little pea. My man crush there, the Elizabethan botanist John Gerard, adding little to this discussion. But he does recommend eating 10 or 12 holly berries to help remove your phlegmatic humour through your stool. Which is bold advice, considering that just 20 holly berries is enough to kill a child. Yes, the berries are incredibly toxic. Do not eat them. But... Although poisonous to us, these droops provide nourishment to rodents and birds, particularly during the winter months, when their food can be especially scarce. And these berries stay on the trees for a long time too. Food for the whole winter, wouldn't you say? Well, sort of. One of the reasons you'll find holly berries on trees throughout the winter is that hollies are often occupied by an overzealous landlord. Missile thrushes are incredibly territorial. Woe betide the red wing or field fair who tries to sample a hollyberry from a bush previously claimed by a missile thrush. These birds will viciously defend a single holly bush for the entire winter season, sometimes even longer still. They will also leave their own hollyberries uneaten for October and most November, choosing instead to feed upon other readily available and unguarded food. The thrush's aim is to maintain a larder for as long as possible, to guarantee a supply of hollyberries to last them through the deepest and darkest parts of winter. A larder, however, purely for themselves and no one else. So, I hear you ask, why isn't the missile thrush called the holly thrush? Well, it was. It has been known as the holm thrush or the hollencock, both holm and hollen being traditional names for the holly tree. But as the thrush behaves the same regarding mistletoe berries, the missile thrush was slash is also a suitable name for this greedy bird set upon self-preservation. Sadly, 
Whether you call it the mistle thrush or the Holland cock, this bird is losing the battle, for it is yet another one of our fantastic songbirds that is on the UK's conservation red list. Their numbers are decreasing worryingly quickly. But as well as being the winter solstice today, it is also National Robin Day. Who'd have thunk it? A day organised by the Songbird Survival Charity to raise awareness and to give advice for how to support our smaller birds and other wildlife as they try to weather the harshness of the Christmas period. So, Christmas. How did Holly work its way into our homes at Christmas time? Well, to answer that, I need to look a little further back into human history. This is where I asked my editor, Ollie, to find some kind of Christmassy time warp sound effect to uh, make them move smooth and seamless. Ollie? For pre-Christian Romans, the winter solstice heralded the commencement of a festival called Saturnalia. In celebration of Saturn, the Roman god of plenty, agriculture and seasonal renewal, sounds very much like our oak king, Saturnalia was a week-long party of mischief, overeating and drunkenness, a celebration of free speech and the reversals of norms. The poet Horace called it December Liberty. Activities such as the normally prohibited gambling were permitted, lavish banquets were thrown for slaves with their masters waiting tables, and one single man was declared the king of Saturnalia, who could demand anything of anyone at any time. Oh, and Saturn forbid, Romans even deigned to dress as Greeks, I know. But at the centre of all of these festivities was Holly. Holly was a plant sacred to Saturn, and alongside other evergreens, Holly was carried in processions. They adorned iconography and were turned into wreaths. They also decorated ceremonial gifts of money called strenae. Now, I won't get into the when and the why of how the 25th of December was chosen as the official date for Christmas, but when Christianity became a thing, it's safe to say that a number of rituals and festivals, I'll talk about the Celts in a bit, were now taking place at the same point in the yearly calendar. This being so, there was bound to be some bleed. As with the Green Knight invading King Arthur's Christmas party, pagan practice infiltrated Christian celebrations, and with it, Holly. Recent converts to Christianity kept celebrating in the ways that they knew and enjoyed. Feasting, gift-giving, perhaps not the dressing up as the Greeks, but there are tales of French choir boys being made bishop for the day, much like being crowned the king of Saturnalia. And decoration with holly garlands and wreaths of other evergreens was immutable. Such hybridization led to a certain archbishop, now Saint Martin of Braga, passing an edict in 572 AD forbidding Christians from decorating their homes with evergreen plants, or at the very least, until Saturnalia had been concluded. But unfortunately for Martin, opposites attract. Decorating churches with greenery at Christmas time was to become so commonplace that old church calendars marked Christmas Eve with the phrase Templar Exornantur which in layman's means deck the halls with boughs of holly, and before you can say tra-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, Christianity had absorbed holly not just into Christmas, but into every ounce of their fervent religiosity. I mean, blood-red berries and sharp-pointed leaves, what's not for a Christian to love? Here's botanist Maud Grieve writing in her Modern Herbal from the 1930s about holly, read by my friend Holly. An old legend declares that the holly first sprang up under the footsteps of Christ when he trod the earth. 
and its thorny leaves and scarlet berries like drops of blood have been thought symbolical of the Saviour's sufferings, for which reason the tree is called Christ's thorn. Christ's thorn, or if that's too much of a mouthful for you, the Elizabethan naturalist William Turner in his new herbal of 1568 simply called it the holy tree. Could have just been a typo. In reality, the word holly probably comes from the Old English hollane, which comes from the Proto-Germanic hulin, which comes from the etc. Basically, we think holly simply means prickly, as in it's holy. It puts a hole in things. Holy. Either way, excluding a short blip when the Puritans came along and tried and failed to quash any semblance of decorative worship, holly and holy became interchangeable both for Christians and indeed for Neil Diamond. And if you got that joke, shame on you and shame on your record collection. Now, we're not entirely sure when it was first composed. The earliest written records of the song are from the early 1800s. But ever since, the holly and the ivy has become one of the go-to carols for the festive season. With the holly representing Christ and the ivy his mother, the symbolism of these two plants from the Laura Silver, both of which returned to our shores during the Atlantic period, have been appropriately decorating our churches for centuries. With her version, one that uses both an old French and an old English tune, here is the Teresa Crowd balladeer herself, Bella Hardy. The holly and the ivy, now they are both full grown. Of all the trees that are in the wood, the holly bears the crown. Oh, the rising of the sun, the running of the deer, the playing of the merry organ, sweet singing all in the choir, sweet singing all in the To be our sweet saviour Oh, the rising of the sun The running of the deer The playing of the merry organ Sweet singing all in the choir Sweet singing all in the choir To hear Bella's magnificent carol in its entirety Her festive album Bright Morning Star is available now And it is burgeoning with tinsel It is the perfect gift and available to download Or in hard form at bellahardy.com. The Christian slash Saturnalian holly in The Holly and the Ivy also harks back to the way our native Celts celebrated. The Celtic winter celebrations had druids decorating their homes too with holly and other evergreenery. They did this to invite sylvan spirits inside. By providing the spirits with warmth, shelter and reverence, the Celts would be protected throughout the rest of the year. But before the greenery wilted, the decorations were to be burned to release the tree spirits once again. But if this were not done, crop failures, agricultural disasters, blights that would cripple you throughout the spring and summer months. The burning of the holly also migrated across to Twelfth Night celebrations, especially in rural settings, and was something that was going on well into the last century. One of my favourite Thomas Hardy poems, Burning the Holly, is set across several sorrowful Twelfth Nights, each one a suspension of predetermined loss and unrequited love, and all illuminated by the flashing of the home flames, as Hardy calls them. Now, if you make it to the end without collapsing into heart-wrenched tears, it's bleak, I mean, that's Hardy, the poem concludes with the essential repetition of the yearly ritual. 
but we still burn the holly. On Twelfth Night burn the holly, as people do the holly, ivy and mistletoe. It is a poem that places yearly holly burning on equal pegging with going to the pub, falling in love and having one's heart broken and squeezed and thrown on a fire and stamped on. It was an integral part of rural existence. Needless to say, the further you travel from Thomas Hardy's Wessex, the happier Holly becomes. Twelfth Night celebrations in Bruff in Cumbria take on a more Saturnalian bent, and they even rebranded Twelfth Night with a far more appropriate name. Here is a description recorded by a certain William Hone in 1827 of their Holly Night festivities. Twelfth Night, or Holly Night, was celebrated at Bruff by carrying through the town a holly tree, with torches attached to its branches. The procession set out at eight o'clock in the evening, preceded by music, and stopped at the town bridge, where it was greeted with shouts of applause. Many of the inhabitants carried lighted branches as flambeau, and rockets, squibs and so forth were discharged on the joyful occasion. There are even rhyming couplets for the occasion. To every branch a torch they tie, to every torch a light apply, at each new light send forth hoorays, till all the tree is in a blaze. The people of Bruff would then meet once more upon the bridge above Swindale Beck, which is the river that divided the town in two. The remains of the now presumably quite charged hollybush were thrown amongst the gathered Saturnalian horde, and what can only be described as a kind of flammable, prickly tug-of-war ensued. The spectators at once divided into two parties, one of which endeavoured to take the tree to one of the inns, and the other to a rival inn. The innkeeper whose party triumphed was expected to treat his partisans liberally. And then the party continued into the wee small hours, until 13th night, I guess. And with that, here are a few, arguably safer, traditional holly-based folk activities for you all to participate in yourselves this Christmas time. Holly Christmas folk activity number one. A sprig of holly is deemed the only appropriate decoration for a Christmas pudding. It brings good fortune to all who eat it. But did you know that you should save these leaves until the following year? Well, these old leaves are to be burned beneath the latest holly-topped Christmas pudding. This ritual, repeated yearly ad infinitum, is designed to ensure a continuity of good luck across the years. I'm sure using your year-old holly leaves to ignite the brandy would be a particularly modern snazzy take on this traditional folk ritual. Holly Christmas folk activity number two. If decorating your home with holly this Christmas time, and why wouldn't you, be careful which leaves you select. Too many prickly leaves from the lower branches and the husband of the house will be set to dominate for a whole year. But too many smooth leaves from upper boughs and the wife will dominate. So, in the interests of domestic harmony, it is best to pick equal amounts of both. Although I'm not sure how this works in same-sex households. Holly Christmas folk activity number three. If you can't find enough holly berries for your wreaths, or the missile thrushes simply won't let you get your secateurs close enough, black ivy berries can be used instead by simply reddening them with sheep rattle. Sheep rattle is the colourful splop you smear over the underside of a tup to make sure he's fertilised all the ewes in your field. Now nothing, I repeat, nothing makes Christmas quite so memorable as the image of one ram servicing a whole field of lady sheeps. 
And if one, two, or even all three of the above activities take your fancy, it goes without saying. Do not pick your holly before Christmas Eve, or you'll piss off St. Martin of Braga. Do not remove it before Twelfth Night, or you'll enrage the Celtic forest spirits. And when you do take down your holly, make sure you remove it all. For, as those old wives say... Down with the holly, ivy, all, wherewith ye dressed the Christmas hall, that so the superstitious find not one least branch there left behind. For look, how many leaves there be neglected there. Maids, trust to me, so many goblins ye shall see. And I haven't even had time to mention that holly red berries, like the roan tree, deter witches. Holly branches thrown at animals will make them bow down in worship. Pliny the Elder believed that holly flowers could even cause water to instantly freeze. And if you're in Normandy, just drop a holly leaf in your milk to keep it sweet. And just don't leave it there too long for all that to listen. We'll play havoc with your phlegmatic humour. A massive thank you to Holly and Hollis for their input in this week's episode. And thank you to Ollie, to Bella, to Nell and to Roz for all their genuinely invaluable input across the series, whether it be botanical, artistic, musical or technological. And that is that. That was Holly. And that was the final episode of my mission to uproot the secrets and stories of the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Bye-bye. Uprooting the secrets... Nah, not like that. This being the final episode, and with it being Christmas and all, did I mention that? I couldn't wrap things up without handing you all a little Christmas present. But firstly, thank you all so, so much for tuning into the series across the year. I've had such an amazing time making it, and your feedback has stunned me. You've thrown so much more additional botanical boffinery my way that I should really rework the whole series. But there is just too much Christmas chocolate to eat. I'm really sorry. Anyway... Providing the sprig of holly upon this Christmas pudding of pod, Christmas podding, I'm hollin' cock-a-hoop to bring you a world exclusive. From the multiple Ivan Novello-nominated band, The Leisure Society, this song is basically the contents of today's final episode, just boiled down into a beautiful, succinct two-minute form and could have saved us all a whole lot of bother. I've also been reliably informed that should you listen to this episode on repeat until Christmas morning, then this song, this very song, is to be crowned this year's Christmas number one. Anyway, I'll stop drawing this out. But with a Saturnalian-sized thank you to Nick et al., this is The Leisure Society. Fly 